town you never heard of. Hey everybody, welcome to the Common Folk Podcast with Ben, Morgan, and Andy. Welcome back to Common Folk. Hey, how's it going, Andy? Cold. Andy's kicking it off over there. There we go. Never fails. Andy's always a drinker. (laughs) Andy gets pegged with that. Yeah, how'd I get that? Guys, I'm always throwing darts at Andy. (laughs) I feel like you were the one that asked about it two or three times before we... Actually, I totally was. I was going to have a margarita if someone else was, but no one else wanted to have one for lunch. Oh, shucks. I wish I would have (laughs) known. You know, you know. Man. I mean, it's five o'clock somewhere. Always. It always is. That's true. That's true. It's, uh, as Andy said, a little bit cold outside, but I feel like it's hot in here. Well, I had the heater on. I'm always freezing. Gosh, dang. You're the one that's cold, too. I'm good right now. All right. Well, you probably have your long underwear on. I do. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Me, too. You, too? Oh, absolutely. Okay, Andy, you, too? Uh, Not right now, no. Or I like to call them guy leggings, and he will argue that. He's like, guys don't wear leggings. That's not what it is. (laughs) But long underwear, it's the same thing. No, you yep. wear pants over them. Yeah, they're long yeah. johns. Yeah. They're long johns. Yeah, I guess true. Mm-hmm. Girls just wear leggings. Uh, Yeah. But yeah. guys mm-hmm. wear leggings and then wear no. pants over them. No, no, we don't. We wear <laughs> long underwear or long johns for okay. slang. And yeah. you can wear them for dog walks in the morning, chop wood. Deer hunting. That's true. Chop, chop yep. a lot of wood in my yep. long underwear. Oh, my God. <laughs> the, uh, the, there is dudes that are starting to wear those pants, though. Yeah. They're, I've like, like kind of tighter on the top, and, mm. like, they're, like... I've really? seen dudes walking around in those pants. Well, it's kind of a trend now of uh, basketball players. There's some male basketball players that, like, wear those legging, leggings. Under yeah. their shorts. Under their shorts, yeah. yeah. but there's a bunch of dudes wearing them just, like, by themselves. Yeah. Hmm. But they probably get manicures and pedicures, too. They, I've, there's a couple of my buddies, we've talked about this. There's a, um, a very <laughs> real thing that a lot of guys' fashion started as women's fashion, and it, it eventually it turns into what guys wear. Mm. So, like, if you look at, at a lot of things that guys wear, women were probably wearing it first. In, like I the mean, soccer pants. Especially in, like, in like the, the urban um, atmospheres. Not this guy. Yeah, not not you. No, you don't. You don't look like you're wearing any girl stuff. <laughs> uh, that's funny because it's uh, the reverse happened uh, back in the '50s and '60s, where you know only men wear blue jeans, and then you know women started wearing blue jeans, and it was more than just a fashion statement. It was a statement. Yeah, yeah. Y- you know, and now I mean, it's more commonplace to see uh, a woman wearing a pair of blue jeans than a miniskirt. In but, a lot of settings. But then what happened is the women took it and then put their spin on it mm-hmm. as far as, like, how it fit, you know, the length, the like the skinny jean thing and right. all this. Yeah. Bedazzled. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then dudes started doing it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, whatever. <laughs> Let's get to Brief what we're... history of f- fashion with... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Because we're fashionistas here. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, we have a guest. Yeah, I'm about to get to it. Okay. All right. So, we're here with my buddy, Vaughn. I can call you my buddy, right? Absolutely. All right. We've known each other a long time. I know. It's been a while now. Uh, Vaughn Hammond, um, 
So where we're at, so a lot, a lot of folks that listen, we have uh, a number of listeners that are from around the Midwest, but a lot of them are all over the U.S., even into other countries from a lot of the stuff Andy's tracking in the analytics. So a lot of people don't understand like regional references, but in the Midwest here, um, in, in working in agriculture, uh, folks kind of know our story where we moved back in 2015 and started the business and got involved in uh, the soil biological category and working with sustainability and regenerative and working on the soil and those types of things. Which is how we met. That's, yep, exactly how we met. So uh, myself and and Andy, actually, we hadn't talked about this. Andy was doing the same thing in northeast Nebraska, Mm -hmm. which is how we originally met. Um, So myself here in this area, running around, meeting farmers, meeting growers, meeting producers. That's how we came across. You were running an operation um, in charge of of that side of that piece. So naturally, you and I got to talking about some of these products I had and some stuff you were already using. And little did I know at the time, I was meeting a guy and tapping into a resource that was going to be very beneficial for myself and my understanding of the category uh, because you had so much to share. Um, And then throughout those years, we kind of stayed in touch as you went to some different operations and my business changed and so on and so forth. And then fast forward to today, um, which another episode that we're going to have coming out, we uh, came across this operation down here in Nebraska City that you're helping uh, build and, and run. Um, and that's what got us back in touch. So it was kind of crazy. I'm talking to the owner and he says, well, I got a guy you got to talk to. He's, <laughs> he's the interview guy. Uh, you need to talk to Vaughn. And I'm like, Vaughn Hammond? Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, yeah, you know him? And I'm like, yeah, that's who's running your deal down there. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So we go down there today, meet up with you. Um, and we'll get to that later, but from what I know of you and, and everywhere you've been around, and even like we go to lunch today, like you you know a ton of people, uh, obviously. You've been around here for a while. Too many. Yeah, <laughs> that can happen. Yeah. What I wanted to do was um, was talk a little bit about how you are and how you came up and what you've been involved in and what you're doing today. So cool. Uh, everybody meet Vaughn, and I'd like to start with, um, is, is this where you were born? Is this where you grew up? Well, I was born in Hamilton County, Nebraska. Okay. Um, grew up in a, uh, Aurora, basically, is where I was born and raised. My mom's side of the family were uh, immigrants from Denmark and had uh, set up um, farmsteading in Hamilton County in a little Lutheran community called Kronberg, uh, about 15, 20 houses based on, around a church, had a little general store and all that kind of stuff. And our family farm was right next door. And, you know, to this day, our family's buried on our property line and can see the, okay. the farmstead right next door. Yep. Um, I was coming of age in the 80s when we had the farm crisis. Mm. And my parents divorced. Uh, that's a very diversified deal. My mom came from agriculture. My dad's side of the family, being in Nebraska, this is a little odd, but we're into exotic animals. Okay. Really? Yeah. Yeah. My grandfather was a professional Santa Claus and uh, had a herd of reindeer, a Macy's Day Parade, the whole bit, traveled the United States being Santa Claus. And and, uh, that was my dad's side of the family, so it was always interesting going to grandpa's place because he knew every carnival, every 
anybody that had exotic animals, we'd show up and there'd be polar bears there because somebody was coming through town. And so it's kind of strange. That seems like a pretty exciting life. Yeah. But I was more drawn to the agriculture. Um, and so uh, as we grew up, I wanted to be a farmer. We spent every summer out at my grandparents' place, and it was not to be. Uh, my mom was a florist, and I started wondering, well, why couldn't I grow what my mom sells? And so that's kind of what got me down the path of uh, – Alternative ag is the mm. best way. I've never been corn, wheat, and soybeans. Mm-hmm. I've always been lettuce, tomatoes, nut trees, apple trees, all that other things, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, that's kind of the direction I went then. Uh, didn't start off with that. Um, got into the trees after I got out of high school and was a tree trimmer for a number of years and then Decided I'd go to uh, get a degree in horticulture and got a degree in horticulture a uh, little later in life. I didn't start college till I was 22 or something like that and uh, graduated with a degree in horticulture. And the day after graduation, I'd gotten a job out on Long Island and packed up and moved to Long Island and managed a acre of hydroponic salad greenhouse out there. And we started a produce company that serviced New York City. Uh, the Hamptons, Montauk, high-end type of stuff, hmm. and did that for a few years. Met my wife out there. She was a Nebraska girl. Uh, the a guy Nebraska that, girl out there? Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of interesting. The dude I worked for out there uh, had a degree in international studies uh, from the University of Nebraska, and uh, he was trying to save his family's potato farm. And so he, in college, had worked at Cornell, it's where he got his bachelor's degree. Um, one of the projects he worked on was this hydroponic deal. So ultimately, after he got his master's degree in international studies from UNL, he implemented this whole program on their family farm. So we grew an acre of salad greenhouse and then 20 acres of specialty crops, jalapenos, uh, yellow tomatoes, baby squash, that type of stuff, hmm. and then sold that. And my wife came out there as an intern. Uh, she hated me at first sight, <laughs> literally. Uh-uh. Oh, I can remember the day. <laughs> we have the new girl coming. You know, you got to be here. We're going to stop early. We're going to stop at 6 o'clock. And this was the type of job that this got me introduced to my unhealthy work ethic. We would work... 40 hours by Tuesday, hmm. crash for 24, work for 40, crash, oh mm-hmm. my gosh. and did this nonstop. And so it was the end of the day. We're going to quit early at 6 o'clock, and we're going to go to dinner. And so, you know, I was long hair back then, as I am now, and sitting there with me and my shorts on the picnic table, and this girl from Nebraska comes around the hedge, and she sees who she knows is going to be her new boss. And it was like, oh, my God, this is my boss. And it was like... <laughs> Hate at first sight. <laughs> so we worked together for a while, and actually the business sold. She stayed with the business. I went with the the new owners to another produce company and a farm stand. I managed a farm stand out on Long Island, and you talk about a farm stand and blah, blah, blah. What was the size of a garage, and we do over a million a year in sales. Mm. It was, wow. it was Yeah, it was an incredible place. But that's when we decided that, you know, we were compatible. So uh, – 
We were out there for a bit, we're going to have a baby, and decided, you know, and literally Joey Buttafuoco was our neighbor. Lorena Bobbitt was our other neighbor. Oh, boy. You know, wow. and we decided, you know what? <laughs> we're not going to graze our kids here. Here, yeah. <laughs> so we packed up, and it was, you know, I mean, it was a big decision. Um, I got my end-of-year check, and we packed up, and we just decided on one week we are moving back home. Oh, hmm. my gosh. And how old were you? Um, I was... In my late twenties, at that okay. point, yeah, but yeah. it's still pretty ballsy when you've been out there for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it wow. was, and we had no jobs. You know, we were confident that we, well, we'd hope we'd find something. Well, we got back here, and it was, you know, started. You know, in my younger years in the farm crisis, and farming wasn't in my books. And then moved back to Nebraska in the early nineties, and that's when nobody was getting jobs out of college. And so a big business out on Long Island was estate gardening. So my wife and I decided, you know what, we'll start doing some estate gardening. And so we put some flyers up in Lincoln. And after the first week, we both had 40 hours of work a week. And ultimately, uh, we were, this word's throwing out a whole lot, but we were blessed. Um, we got in with uh, the upper 10% income bracket of Lincoln and... We did extremely well for 11 years until success was it was either the business or the family. Hmm. And our clientele was not a clientele that you could sell. Okay. And so we just decided to divest. And uh, I went to work ultimately, you know, doing some odd jobs. But ultimately, I'd always been very involved with the University of Nebraska through you know, my being alumni and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty well known, well known in the horticulture department. And uh, somebody from the university called up and said, hey, we got this uh, viticulture research position open. Would you be interested in applying? So I did, and I got the job, and I became research viticulturist um, for the University of Nebraska, working with Dr. Paul Reed at the beginning of the resurgence of wine and grapes in the state of Nebraska. And so did that for a while. Uh, it was a grant-supported position, a grant that was uh, implemented by the Kimmel Foundation um, based out of Lincoln, but originally that foundation's money source was uh, Richard Kimmel out of Nebraska City. And uh, so did that for a while. And one of the research sites, we planted oh, I think it was five research vineyards in southeast Nebraska, one of them being at the Kimmel uh, Orchard. And ultimately, um, I got a job with Arbor Day uh, working at the orchard in support of the vineyard that we had planted there. Mm -hmm. So I became a orchard person for the universe, uh, for Kimmel Orchard. Arbor Day actually was the managing group at that point. Well, at that point, the dean of extension, Albert Dickey, was working with Kimmel closely and said, you know, um, if we ever get this project going at Kimmel, I'm going to pull you back to the university if it works out. And lo and behold, a few years, all of a sudden, I'm working again for the university as a extension technologist. So that was basically non-extension educator because I didn't have a master's degree. But it was doing everything that an extension person would do, plus field work, actual hands-on. 
And so Albert said, you know, if you get your master's degree, I'll bring you on as a full-time extension educator. And I said, hard money. I'm going, okay, well, that sounds good. So I got my master's degree in entomology. And true to his word, Albert pulled me on as an extension educator in specialty crops. Um, I'm, I hate to say it, but I'm kind of considered a local foods expert. Um, I, part of my, my stuff was uh, food safety, uh, GAPS, good agriculture practices. And so I would deal with uh, anything that wasn't corn, wheat, and soybeans, as I'd like to say back then, anything that wasn't corn, wheat, and soybeans and legal in the state of Nebraska, I dealt with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was vegetables, uh -huh. orchard crops, small fruits, high tunnels, greenhouse, vegetable production, uh, aronia, um, a little bit of hops. Uh, hazelnuts, just those specialty crops. And so um, became an extension educator and did that for uh, several years. And uh, then the Nebraska National Guard uh, was going, getting deployed to Afghanistan. And they uh, had what was called the uh, Agri Agriculture Development Team Number 2. And so they came to me and spent, oh, a couple weeks, and I'd spend two or three or four hours and more talking about the stuff, teaching them about what I knew because they were going to an agriculture area in Afghanistan. What, about what year was that? Mm, that was uh, 2010 okay. or so. And so at the end of this whole deal, they, he said, uh, so uh, are you interested in going to Afghanistan oh, with us? Oh, gosh, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I got to say real quick. Yeah, I know you're trying to take notes over there, but, yeah. but there is no way that you kept up with Aurora to Long, Long Island, right. uh, circus animals. Your <laughs> grandfather was the Macy's Day Santa. And uh, my Ray, dad was the Ham's Beer Man. That's that Ham's years. Beer Man. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then we go to the University of Nebraska. Lorena Bobbitt was dropped right. in there right. as, a, as a neighbor. <laughs> like, what Next town over, you know? I wonder if anybody listening doesn't know who she was. Chop, chop. Uh, everyone yeah. has to know. Yeah, that, that was a wild story, man. <laughs> I don't think our kids would know. Yeah. They shouldn't know. Yeah. No, but yeah, like no. anybody our age or older would definitely know. know. God, the, that reminds me of a terrible joke. Should I say it real yeah. quick? I bet I've... Is it a dad joke? Uh, I don't know what you would call it. Okay. But uh, um, these two dudes were driving behind... Uh, their friends, Lorena Bobbitt, and what was the guy's name? Joey Buttafuoco. Buttafuoco. Yeah, Joey Buttafuoco. And their car's all swerving all over and like, oh, man, what do you think's going on up there? And then all of a sudden, whap, something hit the windshield. And the guy goes, oh, my God, look at the size of the dick on that bug you hit. <laughs> <laughs> You're so bad. That is a horrible joke. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was nicely done, though. <laughs> there we go. And I, 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 I forgot that joke even existed. <laughs> So I, I wrote down a couple of quick things I want to sure. ask you. Um, so you mentioned that your uh, non-wife at the time had moved up there. Mm -hmm. So she must have just finished her degree. What yeah, was her she's degree actually, in? Uh, horticulture. She, oh, she's actually a better well. horticulturist than I am. I okay. mean, she was the real roots of the whole estate gardening deal. I uh -huh. mean, she was a Martha Stewart type gardener. So that was my second question is explain estate gardening. Um, basically, our business plan was we took care of landscapes, high-end landscapes, okay. no mowing, no anything. Just go in and take care of their 
pretty, so to mm-hmm. speak, which that changed over the years. Uh, the first time I turned a $200 a week mowing job down was the day I decided, you know, maybe it's worth hiring somebody to do that. So we ended up having, ultimately when it was all said and done, we had our core of regular customers that was our bread and butter, but we had about 125 different residences that we'd visit throughout the year at some point, some of them weekly, some of them monthly. And we mowed about 75 yards and then snow removal. My mom never could wrap her head around the fact that uh, during the winter we didn't work. (laughs) She didn't realize one inch of snow Hmm. paid for our whole month's (laughs) needs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so that that was kind of a a shock that to her that we could actually do that, you know. Right. Yeah. Those are the main things I was wondering. Yeah. I thought those were kind of some interesting points. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, then Afghanistan too. Like I, I left out Afghanistan so in 2010. Yeah. 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 So that's where we were. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we were at. So uh, yeah. So I said I have to ask permission from my two bosses, my dean and my wife, yeah. and both of them said yes. And it wasn't that easy. So the next deal was, well, you need to talk to Howard Buffett. I'm going Howard Buffett. Well, here's his cell phone. Well, that's Warren Buffett's son, who was the Department of Interior, director of Department of Interior at that point. Mm. Did you and, have, at this time, did you have kids? Yes, yeah. I did. We did. We had three children at that point, okay. which was a, a major factor in the whole deal. Yeah. So most people that go over to Afghanistan as a civilian, I was never in the military, but they go through a contractor group and they help them do that. Well, I was kind of an independent, so it took me literally a year 40 hours a week doing the things that I needed to do, which the university was gracious enough to to support as well as I did a little bit of my other stuff. Um, <clears throat> I did a lot of speaking, a lot of, lot of conferences, speaking at conferences and whatnot about the subjects that I'm considered well-versed at. And um, so... Uh, you know, it's crazy things that you have to go through, like role-playing, like you've been captured and you're sitting in a chair and you're watching the video of you tied up in a chair with an interrogator with a sword behind you and a gun over here. And what would you do if they were put, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Scenario. Yes, 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 yes. So there was a year of that type of stuff. And, and you know, I'm not a small guy. And there's there's certain BMI, body mass index mm-hmm. that you had to reach, which I was really nervous at that point because, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. And so did that for a year, and then all of a sudden it's, ah, oh, you're flying down to Fort Benning to go through the pre-deal. And I'm going, okay, that's what, you know. So ultimately did that for two weeks, and at the end of it they said, oh, yeah, you're going. And so then let's get on a big old Frickin' C-130 or whatever mm-hmm, it is, and mm-hmm. you fly to Germany and then fly to, uh, uh, where was it? I don't know. All I know, it was 120 degrees at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Kuwait, Kuwait. Okay. And then, then to Afghanistan. So I was in Afghanistan for 11 months <clears throat> and directly embedded with uh, – a National Guard group, and we would go out on missions, uh, sometimes every day, sometimes two a day. Sometimes we'd take a skip and not do a few days. But my commander at the time, he tells everybody I did 100 missions. Well, that's not true. I probably did closer to 60. 
but still, you know, that's going outside the water wire. Mm-hmm. You got full body armor. And it's pretty awe inspiring for me to realize that here's these twenty seven to sixty people that are armed, your escorts, and they're taking you out to teach farmers what you know. So that's yeah, so that was I think a big question that probably everyone listening right now is wondering. Why were you there? Like, I, I'm, I might have missed that in the yeah, beginning what here, are you but doing? I was there you to doing? help the farmers grow something other than poppies. And this is the Af- Afghan farmers? Afghan farmers, yes. And so I was, we, we were at Fob Gardez, which is in the Paktia um, province of Afghanistan, 60 miles south of Kabul, about 30 miles west east of the uh, Pakistani border. And uh, uh, the FOB that we were on, forward operating base, was a uh, a helicopter base. So it was only helicopters, no fixed a- aircraft. And it was actually the site of the very first special forces mission into Afghanistan to a clot is the structure that the Afghan family lives in, large family unit lives in. It's kind of like a a mud castle, Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, 20-foot walls that are 10-foot thick and gates that close so the marauders can't take whatever there is and and the family units, whether it's mother and father and all the children, all the sons basically and their wives and their children live in. That structure was actually the structure that, Osama bin Laden and his cronies planned 9-11. And so special forces came in and made that the very first mission to take that piece of property back to say, hey, we can do whatever we want. And it was pretty awe-inspiring. My barracks was less than 150 feet from this structure. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, pretty pretty amazing. A little bit of a statement there. Yeah. And for those that um, aren't well reversed uh, in Afghanistan and its exports, or I've watched Ozarks, the series. Yeah. You mentioned poppies. Mm-hmm. Why, what's the deal with poppies? Opium and heroin. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so it's it was rather interesting. Um, um, Paktia was only one of a, only a handful of provinces in Afghanistan that actually did not grow poppies which then made them available to the ADT help. And so our commander was uh, a lieutenant colonel at that point, um, which then gave him the ability to bring in, I think it was $75,000 a month at that point, that myself and then two other military gentlemen, um, Bob Hutes and... uh, 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 I'll think of his name here. Uh, uh, um, uh, Reese was his last name. Anyway, um, that uh, we would disseminate out in programming education classes for Afghan farmers. Now, the kicker was we could only spend $5,000 on a program at a time. And those programs were or, and down to a dollar. So we had $75,000 that we had to spend that way every year. So it was things like shearing sheep, which I didn't know anything about, but I learned learned. about it, (laughs) you know, um, giving vaccinations, making edible fodder out of straw, 
Um, so composting using urea, urea to, to decompose the straw into edible for the cattle. Apple growing, high tunnel growing, vegetable growing, um, just any number of things like that. And really, a- Afghanistan is a hugely agriculture region. Um, it, it's really quite the phenomenal con- country um, when, when you uh, look at the diversity of agriculture that they a- actually happen to have. Small scale for the most part, but and mostly by hand, you know, but – the diversity is incredible. That's interesting because, like, someone like myself who's never been there, and I only hear and see what I see on the news or hear on the news or whatever, all I think is just desert wasteland that couldn't grow anything. Actually, very much so. Very yeah. much. Chris Reese was the other gentleman. Uh-huh. Um, but very much so. I mean, Gardez in, in Pashtu is dust, mm-hmm. you know, so – and it's so dusty, you know, 70% of the dust is actually sheep fecal matter hmm. that has broke down because they have Ooh. huge flocks of caracool sheep over there. And it was one of the maladies that the soldiers in that area would come home with is they'd get all this mm. stuff in their lungs. Yeah. And then it would, you know, it, it, it would really affect them. But did that for 11 months and uh, came home once during that time and uh, – had some pretty interesting experiences during that whole deal and oh, sure. still have some of the interpreters. Some of the interpreters we were able to get out and some of them are still over there and still hear from some of the guys over there that are still there and um, growing apples and doing the different things that they do. Hmm. Our commander is now a general. Um, while we were there, we actually got bumped up to 100,000 because he got promoted to lieutenant cur- to colonel, full bird colonel, and then has since been progressed to being a general in the Nebraska National Guard. So Interesting. Wow. Hang. So the, um, the interpreters, you said something about like getting some of them out or whatever. Did they come – some of those guys come to the States or ladies or whoever they were? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah some of them have. Um, some of them have been very successful. They've all assimilated into society pretty well. Some of them extremely successful. Um, and uh, some of them have not. And mm-hmm. Some of those stories are – not good. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Did uh does that play into um you know all the stories around the pullout, you know, just a few years ago and how so many of those people got left behind and then you started seeing hearing stories and seeing movies of guys going back. Uh, I think the Covenant was one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was is that is it that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And and to be quite frank, you know, I after I got back, I applied for a couple positions, got hired for both. One of them was the uh, uh, Afghanistan is divided into three or four different regions, and I got basically hired. I'd been to D.C. three times, and I was scheduled to go for my fourth time, after which I was supposed to give my notice to the university, but I got basically hired to be the head USDA person of, of one of the regions in Afghanistan. Then the pullout happened, total pullout, and then they withdrew that position. Mm. But quite frankly, um, it was probably one of the most fulfilling things that I'd ever done. And whether it's good or not, I'd probably be still be there if I could. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so, I never even knew that you yeah. had done that. Yeah. Well, there's so many stories like that where <clears throat> people that actually had their boots on the ground and saw the progress, saw the everyday people and the lives that you were changing oh. and the commerce that you were bringing to the table. People probably didn't think about growing, 
you know, different types of fruit trees around there until you showed them. Oh, no. Oh, it was well, life-changing what you were doing. Some of it was, but actually, you know, in the early 1900s, Afghanistan was the darling of international irrigation. Hmm. The Afghans. So we were in the Hindu Kush, and our altitude was a mile and a half. So we were way up there. Oh, yeah. and, and you walk out in the morning, and here's snow everywhere. It didn't matter if it was July. I mean, you're, you're, wow. you're right there. And there's so much water. And I'm not kidding you. An Afghan farmer can move water uphill with a shovel. That sounds interesting. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but they were the darlings of irrigation back mm-hmm. in the early 1900s. <laughs> I mean, their agriculture is huge. And, and they did grow apple trees. And one of my favorite stories is they brought, you know, they could make appointments and come onto the fob with their problems. And so, you know, they'd have to be vetted and everything. And, and this guy brings his apples, and they were obviously just rotten apples. You know, just nasty, rotten apples. And, well, what's the problem? This is happening to my apples on my tree. And I'm looking at it, and I'm very hesitantly telling him they needed to be picked a month ago. So I tell him that. I said, you know, they're rotting on the tree because they're too ripe. And he's telling me, who are you to tell me that these apples should have been picked a month ago because – my grandfather's father picked apples on the 14th of September. My grandfather picked apples on the 14th of September. Oh. My father picked apples on the 14th of September. And you're telling me I should have picked apples on the 1st of September? Infidile. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so it's uh, – You didn't mean to do that, but <laughs> – It's, 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 uh, it's agriculture <clears throat> steeped in tradition. Yeah. Uh-huh. Steeped in tradition, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of our security teams were law enforcement. And, you know, marijuana is not mentioned in the the Koran. And they would actually grow marijuana right up to the base's line, Hmm. you know, which was great for the farmers because it's protected. You know, American soldiers are right here. We would do nothing with that. If it was poppies, we'd destroy it. But we would allow the farmers to cultivate their crop, harvest their crop, disseminate their crop. Then special forces would follow that crop to where they produced and turned it into hashish by the Taliban. And then the special forces would come in and destroy the crop. Mm. So the farmer always got his income, but the Taliban didn't get the final line. Hmm. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, it worked out pretty well. But they used to goof on that all the time. We'd be out on a mission and there'd be, you know, we'd be going through a field. And, you know, this one guy, he just happened to be in law enforcement and he made a major, major, he was major undercover and made this major deal in Lincoln that was a huge deal. And he'd just goof on it and he'd take these pictures and send them back home and to his buddies back in law enforcement saying, you know, this is what I deal with every day here. Different world. Different world. Yeah. So you you came back from there, mm-hmm. um, and as you said, you still kind of had some contact with that throughout the years, right? But, and, but I was over there also as an extension educator. Yeah. So I worked for the Department of Interior as a subject matter expert in agriculture, but I was also a representative of the Uni- University of Nebraska. 
um, extension uh, working with Paktia University in Gardez, Afghanistan. So I had a kind of a joint appointment. So when I came back from Afghanistan, I was still a, a University of Nebraska extension educator, which was really strange because my first farm bi- visit back, I took two weeks off after I got back. And my first visit back was to a vineyard outside of Union, Nebraska. And uh, number one, I was driving you know, which was really weird. And number two, I didn't have 70 pounds of gear on, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and I'm driving by myself to this farm visit and I'm just sitting here in utter amazement, you know, three weeks ago, I, this was a whole different story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, and so continued that for, with the university for two more years. And then a group at Union, Union Orchard called me up and said, you know, I bought my son, I bought an orchard in Union, Nebraska. They lived in Colorado and we've never done anything like this. And I bought this for my son's career. Would you consider being his mentor? And so ultimately after we negotiated, it was worthwhile for me to leave the university system and I became his mentor, their mentor for two years at Union Orchard. And then then Kimmel Orchard called the backup because that's where my or- my office was located and it kind of, you know, they needed some help at that point and I was kind of a problem solver and I have an eye for detail and they asked me to come back and manage the orchard there. So I went back to Kimmel, managed that for a little bit of time, a few more years and then after that, um, an opportunity came up at Vallis Pumpkin Patch in Gretna, Nebraska, and I became the agriculture manager there, which um, when I was hired there, I said, hey, you got four years because I'm retiring in four years. And they said, that's great. We'll look for somebody that's, you know, not as far along in their career that we can bring <clears throat> along. And and so uh, uh, we hired a young man by the name of Kyle Willis, who took over as the uh, agriculture manager at Vallis and uh, – I retired, and now I'm back to growing lettuce and water. <laughs> Not really retired, you know? still working. No. Yeah, but it's, it's all good. Yeah, it's all yeah. good. Now, you, you, he really mentioned that fast. He there. did. Uh, but I think people need to get their mind around what Valas is. Like before the, the before Valas, let me ask real quick about Union. Sure. Uh, how do you think that they those folks from Colorado became aware of you and decided to bring you into that? Uh. I'm known. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My reputation preceded me, good or bad. Yeah. Good oh, or bad. I'm sure it's all good. That right, right at that time frame, <clears throat> excuse me, was when you and I met. Correct. That's when, um, when I was starting our business, and someone had mentioned to me about you and your affiliation with the university. I had no idea who you were. Uh, I hadn't. We hadn't been here for ten years. We had been moving around the country. We had just come back. And really getting into this industry, I'd never really been in this industry before. Um, but they, your your name kept coming up, and then the Union Orchard was within my territory on the product, and I had heard that you were down there, so I came down there. And I mean, it was must have been like right when you made that change because I was aware of the university, and then the whole Union thing, and then we started working on some projects there with some. Um, Our first projects were at Kimmel, was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and then. We proceeded over to and then Union. I remember being okay. at Union, but I don't remember the Kimmel. Yeah. Okay. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I thought I, it was but, Kimmel when we first met, but I it don't doesn't know. matter. Yeah. But that's yeah. been a while mean, ago. Yeah. I it wasn't is. always with him at all. But. but yeah, and then I, 
so that was kind of always how I knew you was almost what I was considering from the outside looking in as like a, a consultant for these places, although you were on payroll, you know, you worked for them, but every one of these places needed your expertise and understood what you were bringing to the table. They needed a Vaughn. Yeah. And I, I, like, it was clear to me, I'm watching, I'm going, okay, yeah, all these people are going to start buying for this guy all around here. <laughs> but, the Vaughn father. Yeah. yeah. Give me the Vaughn. Yeah. And I was just glad that I had something that was up your alley and that you believed in because I knew like, man, as long as I can stay in contact with Vaughn, he's going to open doors for me. And you did. So that well, was I appreciate awesome. that. Well, yeah. you know, my whole deal back when I was 19, 18, 17, you know, back when I thought I might be able to farm, my whole focus was organics. Yeah. You know, I've, I've always been this organics guy until I wasn't, you know, and it, it was just a progression of doing this for a long, not that I'm anti-organics at all. I'm very, very much pro-organics. It's just, it's not for everybody and every, yeah. every production situation i mean to grow organic apples where we are here in missouri river valley not gonna work impossible impossible you know but western nebraska where there's no humidity you know for disease you need three things you need the, the disease organism you need the proper temperature and you need the proper water level you know to support that disease well, we have tons of humidity here. We mm-hmm. got the disease organisms because it's everywhere, and we know we got the heat, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you go to Nebraska, and they got the disease organisms. Western Nebraska, they got the disease organism. They got the heat, but they don't have the moisture. So you can do organic orchards more easily in in western Nebraska where there's less humidity. So mm. organics is not always feasible, and I'm not – talking down on organics in any way, shape, or form. I'm on the board of directors of the Nebraska Sustainable Agriculture Society, and we are about, you know, organics. And and, I've, and I'm 100% behind organics, but there is certain situations where it's just not practical. I feel like that conversation is the exact conversation that I've had with so many people surrounding electric vehicles. It's like the people who in the electric vehicle industry who are in the position that you're in, in horticulture, are afraid to talk about all of the bad things about the electric vehicles. They're afraid to do what you just did right there, where you said, there's a time and a place for these things. And it's not all good, all day, every day, everywhere. There's, there's a, a, a use case for mm-hmm. these kinds of ways of doing things, these kinds of products. My whole deal is success. If I'm, you know, number one, people have to learn from my mistakes and I've made plenty. And I, that's the first thing I share is my mistakes. And, and so, you know, when I say, you know, it's very difficult not to grow an apple crop, a fruit crop Mm -hmm. without using conventional chemicals in this neck of the woods, it's not impossible, but you need to make a viable living, you know? Yeah. Well, and so, and I, but I think that's being real and relatable to your point, maybe to your point of the vehicles, maybe they're just not ready to be there yet or without argument or there's well, just feeling like they need to defend it. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, and I'm, I'm saying that like organic growing has been very trendy for a number of years. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good that comes from it. There's a lot of reasons that make it not work you know, for whatever case. And that's what he's talking about. It's the same same thing with EVs. There's a lot of good that come from these, 
but there's a lot of reasons why they don't work and why you can't have them in certain scenarios. Right. And I just don't, I feel like we just don't get the whole story on it. It's just yeah. having an open conversation and yes. honest conversation. Right. That's yeah. what I'm what saying. He's work. being honest, if real. I, if I could, I would 100% grow organics because yeah, why not? the tons of chemicals that I've actually sprayed in mm-hmm. my lifetime, yeah. I'm sure has had a physical detrimental effect on me. Mm-hmm. No doubt, sure. no doubt about yep. it. You know, that's not to say that all organic compounds are safe. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough word to use when yeah. you're talking about pesticides. <laughs> yeah. um, safe is no matter if it's organic or not. Sure. But the, the, the fact of the matter is organics is misunderstood. You know, the consumer thinks organics, it's not sprayed. You know, yep. I'm not, you're not spreading pesticides. Yep. Excuse me. Anything that kills a pest is a ICID, mm-hmm. is a side, you know. So, yes, you are spraying pesticides. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. may not be seven that's, you know, a, a, a harsh chemical, so to speak. Yeah. It may be pyrethrums, but pyrethrums are one of the most deadly compounds to fish, mm-hmm. to aquatic life. So... It's considered an organic, but it has its own drawbacks too. Yeah. So you know, it's it's education, and and organics is a is a very um, hot topic. Yeah, it sure is. It, it, you know, but I am one hundred percent organics. I wish we could all grow organics, but at the same time, it's not always the practical thing to be doing. Right. Yeah. Andy, back to. You were, I think you were going to say something about when I interrupted Valas. you about He Valas. just like yeah. breezed over yeah. Valas. I, Valas, I, mean, I would say it wrong. The, the scope of that operation. And then that's just another job in your list of jobs where, hey, come on, Vod, come on in. Hell, help us with this uh, pumpkin patch. It's a little bit more than just a pumpkin patch. Yeah, it's I a, mean, he, it's uh, a, what, it's the cider? The, 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 the apples. cider, <laughs> you know, that all came, yeah. You apples. did all that? Well, no, I didn't do all that. <laughs> I was part of all that. Oh, okay. But the apples... The cider, flowers, landscape, sunflowers, corn maize, 50 acres of pumpkins, all those things. (laughs) How many people do they bring through that place in a three-week span in the fall? Uh, I hate to be quoted, but uh, over 300,000, probably closer to 400, and probably north of 400. It just depends. Some of the folks listening won't know what it is, but it has to be the largest – Agra Entertainment Farm in fall, the Midwest. Fall themed in the Midwest yeah. for oh, sure. It's yeah. not in the United States. No, no. I think, I, mean, I think commercials aired in Kansas City. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You go through the parking lot at Valas on any given day and you're going to go, what? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you walk into a place in St. Joe, Missouri and you got your Valas logo on and you open the door for somebody and they go, wait, you work at Valas? We want to go there. You know, you're going, Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of wild. It's not what you would think about if you if you've never seen it. Like it's not mm-hmm. like some theme park or something like that. It's in essentially what a lot of people would consider small town Nebraska. I mean, it's outside of the city, uh, a family farm at one time that's been converted into this event place every fall mm-hmm. and it's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. It's been around since we were kids, I yeah. think. I mean, yeah, I, I think re- this year's night is it's 38th maybe okay. 39th year coming up there you go so yep. yeah. so it's 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 a tradition yeah um, it is it is truly a tradition uh 
It's uh, an amazing, amazing place, uh, all based on agriculture. You go yeah. there and you may say, well, how does this work on agriculture? But, you know, there's something for everybody ag-related, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got apples and kids, you know. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, there's 40 acres of high-density apples there. Um, you've got antique machinery every place. Well, that takes care of grandpa and dad, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. where do you see a slipcock tractor that's been restored? Well, at Vala's, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, mom, you know, the flowers in the landscape. I mean, there's a Tim puts a lot of emphasis on the landscape and the beauty of the place, mm-hmm. and and that takes a ton of time. And so, the whole thing about Vala's is it's all about the family. The Vala family is is dedicated to the family experience and making. Magical memories. And there's mm-hmm. so much to do for the kids. I mean, from you can, little itty-bitties and, to my kids who you know, are teenagers. Right. And we always talk about this with, like, hunting and fishing and stuff, how get off the screen, get out of the city, go out. This is the in the same vein of that, you know, get, getting re-in-touched with the Mother Nature, the mm-hmm. farm. Where does your food actually come from? How is it made? Yes. All that stuff can be discovered there and enjoyed. It's fun. And this is just the fall, and, and it's just six weeks? Uh, nine weeks. Nine weeks. Nine okay, weeks yeah. So. so it's very, very limited, but very so limited. many people come for it yeah, from it, miles it, away. It, it's, it's a phenomenal place. It's a phenomenal experience, you know. It, it started as a U-Pick strawberry patch. That did it? Yeah, so okay. as you pick strawberry patch that wasn't successful, and then they did vegetables and sweet corn, and that wasn't successful. And they just I've, kept chucking away. I've heard stories about I, that one of the men that I met through Tim was a longtime acquaintance of Tim's, and he had a letter that they were corresponding back and forth by written letter at that point. Mm-hmm. And he wrote Tim and says, "What are you going to do, Tim?" Because everybody was struggling. Mm-hmm. And Tim's response to him, and he has this letter hung on his wall, is, well, you know, I think I'm going to plant more pumpkins. Oh, wow. <laughs> and yeah. then that's awesome. what it started. And, that, and that's oh, kind and of And he's got that started. letter? Yeah. That's so oh, do you cool. feel like it's an honor to have worked for them? Oh, or, I absolutely yeah. do. Okay. I absolutely do. And probably um, anybody you've worked for, in a sense. Yeah, you're, 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 you're quite correct. You know, I mean... Some of the people, and I didn't even mention early on in my horticulture career, I've got th- three people that I consider my mentors. Uh, my very first one was a gentleman by a, the name of Gene Gage. Uh, Gene was a phenomenally intelligent person, phenomenally. Um, he was actually the uh, uh, ambassador to Sweden for a number of years. And he was into herbs, and I worked at a place called the Acreage in Lincoln. Um, it was really – we started the very first Made in Nebraska logo back then, and we would grow herbs and infuse them in vinegar. And this was like a strip mall type of deal that this gentleman by the name of Don Leonard put together. Anyway, long story, it was kind of a staple in in the – late 80s in in Lincoln and a lot of people would come we'd open up in the morning for K or to come and shop you know because it was all made in Nebraska products who if people don't remember she was governor of the state of Nebraska but Jean Gage was my very first what I would consider mentor and then came Albert Dickey was extremely instrumental in my career who was the Dean of Extension at the University of Nebraska um, and then after that, Ernie Wyneth, who was the uh, the uh, uh, 
uh, person behind Kimmel Orchard and the Kimmel Foundation had a very influential part of my life. So those three gentlemen and many more, but those three gentlemen really helped propel me to to what I ended up doing in life. Yeah. Nice. Do you feel like you have done then the same with I, trying to mentor I others? I have tried. You know, I have tried. I would like to think I have. Oh, I'm you know? sure you have. I and just didn't know if I, you've. And I'd like to think that I will in the future. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So. what do You, you had mentioned something earlier about um, what you specialize in and some like food systems and some things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're going to wrap up here pretty soon. But I wanted to ask you, what do you think about our current food system and how everything works? Uh wow, we really don't a, have a lot, enough yeah. time for <laughs> that. That was a big question, Ben, when yeah, you just said we're going to wrap huge, it up. That's a huge, huge question. Um, you know, and I'm going to step on toes here. Yeah, sure. I'm going to step I, on I toes figured, here. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we like to tout in the state of Nebraska that we feed the world, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know. Well, when you drive down the interstate and see the miles and miles of cornfield, yeah, we grow lots and lots and lots of corn. Mm-hmm. And that goes to lots and lots and lots of cattle. And that goes to lots and lots and lots of ethanol. But there's only so many societies that can afford the beef mm-hmm. that our corn feeds. We don't eat ethanol, okay? Which then brings me back. So, so yeah, we feed the world. But, yeah, we don't because we can't even feed our hometowns mm-hmm. locally, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. And so this is why I have always been such an advocate of local foods mm. because there is a a portion of life there, a portion of society that we as ag producers and we as farmers and a small farmer, okay? So local foods generally means – is equated to a small producer. Yep. There's many, many opportunities for people to make a viable living. Won't become rich by any stretch of the imagination, but who does? But, yep. you know, you can raise a family. But by growing food locally, and if we had more of an emphasis towards that, you know, I think we would be better off as a society. Um, you know, one of the things we like to say in local foods is know your farmer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Know where your food comes from. Know your farmer. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing less important than that. I mean, if you can actually have a working relationship, a daily relationship in a lot of ways with that guy that's or that lady or that whoever that's growing your food for you, mm-hmm. I mean, come on, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Who do you trust? Right. Who do you trust? You know, so yeah. local foods is in, in my world and in my psyche is probably the most important thing that we – one of the most important things that we can do. Not to downplay agriculture in any way, big agriculture in any way, shape, or form. You know, when I was a kid, diversified agriculture meant the farm had corn, wheat, soybeans, hogs, chickens, maybe a few horses, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Today, diversified agriculture means I grow corn, I grow soybeans, I sell seed corn, I might sell some fertilizer, and I might have another side business. That's Mm -hmm. diversified agriculture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
two totally different types of diversified agriculture. I contend which one's better. Yeah. You know, for society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So. Th- yeah. Things have gone in certain directions and some stuff out of control, some stuff, you know, out of necessity. But And, and I'm not downplaying other I hear you. you. Know, yep. In any yep. way, shape, or form yep. because, you know, it's so, so, so important in the, yep. in the big picture. But individually, we as consuming citizens, you know. Yeah. And I, I agree with you in the um, – with the idea that the further we as individuals get away from the, our food source, the, the worse that is for us. That we, we need to understand it. We need to understand where it's coming from. We need to understand who's growing it. We need to understand where it's grown, what kind of nutritional value it has, why we're putting it in our mouth. Why are we eating red peppers from the Netherlands that were growing in a greenhouse that a week ago they were in the Netherlands and today they're in, you know, whatever supermarket it is? What has it taken for that red pepper, orange pepper, yellow pepper, or whatever produce it is to get thousands and thousands of miles by air to the United States and then trucked? Mm -hmm. I mean, look at where we are in the Midwest. Yeah. You know, I mean, you would think a lot of – again, my contention is someday Nebraska will be, especially with climate change as we get warmer, certain parts of Nebraska will become vegetable-producing regions because even though they might lose a crop or two to a wintertime scenario, mm-hmm. look at the price of land in California. Yeah. Look at the lack of water in California. Look at the miles from California to New York. Here in the Midwest, we're centrally located. Currently, we have a pretty decent water supply. Climate's changing a little bit. But it seems to me, in in, in my psyche, that someday we'll be growing those things here because yeah. we have to. Yeah. Like it's worth the risk. Yes. For people to do yeah. it here instead of. Mm-hmm. You know, you may lose a couple crops. Yeah, that's but, what, yeah for know. the winter. Yeah. Yeah. Risk. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes a ton of sense, but there's so many things that we do as a society that doesn't make sense. Right. You know, that kind of detracts from that. Right. You know, well, of course right. we get our red peppers or bell peppers from the Netherlands. Why wouldn't we? <laughs> well, <You know>? yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, we've talked about this before in terms of what we eat and why we eat and when right. we eat it. Um, I firmly believe that we're uh, very spoiled and, and privileged in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Like, if I want a red pepper right now, I can go to the grocery store and get it because mm-hmm. it comes from anywhere in the world and it's always readily available. Exactly. Where, you know, 100 years ago, if I wanted a red pepper, it better be summertime and it better be on the plant out back. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'm not yeah. I'm not getting one. Unless right. it's canned. Or, right. Yeah. Yes, right. Unless you yeah. had it canned and yet it's saved. And yeah, it's and convenience. That's, and, yeah. Right. Yes. And that's how people's diets um, were structured was around... What was available to them, available to them in their local market in their own backyard mm-hmm. that time of the year, unless it was canned and it was stored and it was preserved. Yeah. Irish and the potatoes. Yeah, you know, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's all changed so much. Everything's at our fingertips now. We can get whatever we want whenever Boom. we want. Give Boom. me some Uber. <laughs> yeah, Uber <laughs> is. Yeah. You know, right now. You know, season <laughs> extension. You know, extending seasons yep. and you know and and making yep. you know growing situations and efficiency and, and irrigation and all the things that 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 science has developed. You know, yep. 
whether you know you want to think about it or not, agriculture at whatever level is all about science. Mm-hmm. All about science. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I hear you. And you're the leading science guy. No, no, no. I'm just. Uh, I'm just. I'm just me. <laughs> He's the horticulture whore. He's the Vaughn. What'd you say? <laughs> you're the horticulture whore. You know, oh. my dad. No, 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 no. My dad always used. To, my dad always used to say, "You can lead a horse to water, but you can't lead a horticulture." Oh, <laughs> damn! Horticulture. This 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 recording's got jokes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I liked the Vaughn father. That should the be your father? name. Yeah. That is a good one. No, yeah. I'm kind of sticking with V Daddy. V Daddy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's right. another discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what we'll call this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, Vaughn, we appreciate it, man. It's been uh, good getting to know you um, from all those other different angles, all the things that I never knew, um, even over these past few years. Very appreciative of you. Absolutely. Um, my pleasure. Yeah, for sure. Um, so hopefully folks enjoy this. We're going to do another episode, uh, in regards to your current workplace and some crazy things that are going on here in Eastern Nebraska. Um, so stay tuned for that. Anything else? Sounds good. I think that's it. No? All right, Vaughn. Well, we cool. appreciate it, man. Okay. All right. Appreciate Thank you. you. Peace. See ya. See ya. <laughs>